Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom Schult, from the University of British Columbia on the ancestral, traditional, and unceded territories of the Musqueam people. It's been a long hiatus. I apologize to all our faithful listeners for being away so long, but we're back, and along with some special guest hosts who you'll get to know over the next little while, uh, we remain determined to bring you interviews with some of the leading lights in these transdisciplinary and groundbreaking fields. Those who have followed this podcast in the past and those who follow developments in cybernetics in the present will be no strangers to the name Ranulph Glanville. This brilliant multi-PhD holding polymath who commingled cybernetics with ethics, pedagogy, and above all design has, through his voluminous body of groundbreaking papers, had a greater influence upon the field than arguably any scholar since Heinz von Furster. At the 2015 Conference of the International Society for the System Sciences in Berlin, a group of self-proclaimed Glanvillians, made up largely of former students and collaborators of Glanville and a few fortunate interlopers like myself, met over a breakfast table at the Scandic Hotel Potsdamerplatz and at the prompting of Thomas Fisher and Candy Hare, committed themselves to consolidating Glanville's legacy and pointing the way to future extensions and investigations of his central claim that design is the practice of cybernetics and cybernetics is theory for design. The result is Design Cybernetics Navigating the New, edited by Fisher and Hare and out from Springer in 2019. Featuring an eclectic blend of mid-career and senior scholars, the assembled chapters probe the vital relationship between conversation and design, the commitments of a radical constructivist epistemology, the virtues of being out of control, the embracing of error, and the seemingly paradoxical notion of getting lost with rigor across a wide array of artistic and scientific domains. In my interview with Fisher and Hare, as both the interviewer and a contributor to the book, I have, in the spirit of walking our talk, eschewed the erasure of error by editing and left in full view the meandering trail of a wandering and at times stumbling conversational journey featuring prolonged gaps in thinking, confusion between different articles by the same author, technical miscues, and even a pitched battle between my two cats in order to model our commitment to process over perfection and personify Glanville's favorite Samuel Beckett quote, try again, fail again, fail better. I hope you find the stops along the ways of this meandering journey as stimulating as we did. And now, without any further ado, let's turn to our interview. Tom Fisher and Candy Hare, welcome to uh, New Books and Systems and Cybernetics. It's so great to have uh, two such dear friends on the show. In the introduction, I've already uh, made a disclaimer that uh, we're uh, good friends, and I'm also a contributor in this uh, in this volume, so uh, it won't be the most uh, neutral interview I've ever done, uh, but hopefully an informative uh, and interesting one for the uh, for the audience as well. It's just great to have you both here. All right. Thank you for having us. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Tom. So uh, we'll start off with our traditional New Books Network question, which is what took you to the field of cybernetics? You can each uh, you decide which order you want to go in. Um, and uh, tell us just a little bit about how you discovered the field of cybernetics and what drew you to it. Hi, I'll, I'll start this. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm Candy. And um my journey to cybernetics is a slightly indirect one. I heard about cybernetics mostly through Tom, who was involved way earlier than I was because he was meeting Ranulph Glanville and uh, just getting into contact with a lot of cyber t- uh, cyberneticians and the literature related to the field. So I got interested. I started slowly reading, but it took me a while to really get into those ideas. And then I attended the... ASC 2009 conference in Olympia in um, Troy. No, no, Olympia it was. And it was 2010. Two, yeah, Troy was 2010. So 2009 was my first conference and uh, I met a lot of the people. And I think this aspect of experiencing cybernetics as a network of thoughts, not just as body of thought of one person, that really helped a lot because it suddenly gave up a, a whole variety of, of potential avenues and um, then the second entry point was 2010, because 2010, we had um, as a very special event um, for the 2010 conference, 
uh, a dinner speech by the very eminent uh, radical constructivist theoretician of Ernst von Glasersfeld. And uh, during the dinner speech, I, I really felt what what he said and uh, how he introduced the relationship between radical constructivism and cybernetics. That was totally what I had experienced in my own um, designing and in my own design education. So after that, I really got into that body of theory, which I hope that you you know and the audience knows is quite related to cybernetics. And from that point onwards, I really got hooked. Great. And we will definitely talk about uh, radical constructivism, I'm sure, as we as we uh, go along. And your background, uh, as well as being a cybernetician, is in architecture and design, yeah? Yeah, I think a lot of the people um, who contributed to the Design Cybernetics book have a background in architecture, same as Reynold Glenville, who um, had a background in architecture. But uh, it also includes architecture and design related fields such as yours um, from anything from acting to um, uh, what are the other fields um, interior lighting yeah. uh, embedded systems yeah the wider field of design not just architecture I, yeah. I would yeah. say and the design of social systems as well yeah yeah definitely great and Tom uh, you are one of the uh, true Glenvillians in that uh, Ranulf was one of your PhD was a supervisor on one of your PhDs your multiple PhDs. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, about that journey? Yeah, so that, that it wasn't a journey at all in the sense that cybernetics was always there for me. Um, so I cannot remember a time when I did not think cybernetically in terms of uh, loops of interdependencies and cause and effect and what can pre what can be predicted and what cannot, what, what can be known about the other and not. Uh, I that that stuff goes back in my mind and into my earliest memories. But of course, I arrived at the field of cybernetics through um, becoming a teacher. I, I, I studied to be a teacher, and in that process, I was uh, dissatisfied with the goal orientation of most pedagogical theories and um, models. And at that time, Candy and I studied or we attended a, a seminar at the University of Kassel um, by the uh, by Professor Hans Dehlinger on methods and theories of design. And Hans Dehlinger was a student of Horst Rittel, who is a preeminent design theoretician. And as a part of our readings for that seminar, we had to go through the um, 1973 paper by Rittel and Weber, uh, Dilemmas in a General Theory of Planning, where they introduced the notion of wicked problems. And that was uh, the first acknowledgement that I have come across um, of processes that can be engaged with rigorously without a pre-specified goal. And that resonated very much with my uh, ideal conception of, of education. And as a consequence of that, I changed my path from education to design and eventually design education. And as a design student, I had the fortune of having Reynolds Glendale, the design cybernetician uh, that Candy mentioned already, sitting on my review panels. And with his um, insights and support, I was drawn further and further into cybernetics. Great. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so, Randolph Glanville obviously is the, the guiding spirit that inhabits all every page of this book, really. Uh, That's right. And, and uh, you know, having been part of the original conception of the book that you described when we were all at a conference together in, in Berlin in 2015, um, that idea to to make sure, in a sense, that uh, sorry, I'm I'm starting to try and answer the next question I'm going to ask you. So I'm going to shut up. Can you tell us <laughs> why this book now? What was the inspiration <laughs> for this book now? Why don't you tell the story and I'll just turn my mic off for a second. Yeah, okay. Um, so as you said, the book is um, mostly largely inspired by Reynolds Glanville, who's been a mentor for most of the contributing authors. Uh or a colleague or closely involved in, in one way or another for many years. 
And then there was that, that breakfast that you mentioned at the Scandic Hotel at Potsdamer Platz in Berlin. We were all, not all of us, but I think seven of us were attending the, the, the annual conference of the International Society for the System Sciences, or IEEE-S. And that was half a year after Reynolds had passed away at a time when his contribution to the field had an incredible momentum. And uh, that was when, uh, yeah, that bunch of seven, Liz, Liz Werner was there, Ben Sweeting, Michael Hall, Tim Jackner, yourself, the two of us, we realized that it was now up to us to show the impact of Reynolds' ideas on our own work and to see what we can do to consolidate that field of design cybernetics and possibly develop it further. So that group of contrib contributors then grew to include Ted Krüger and Ute Besenecker, Delfina Fantini, as well as Claudia Westermann. And shortly after that, we had the opportunity to present the concept of the book to the editors of Springer's Design Research Foundation book series. And those uh, series editors then encouraged us to also involve more senior um, cyberneticians who had things to say about design. And that is how then Klaus Krippendorf, Paul Pangaro, and uh, Hugh Doubley, Larry Richards, and Wolfgang Jonas uh, were involved. And that's now, I think, more or less the whole cast of the contributing authors. And it's probably um, fair to say that this whole group felt that design cybernetics had then reached a point where it should be consolidated as a con consistent body of thought in a single volume. And that's basically what the book attempts to do. Great. Thank you. Um told the story much better than I was about to. Um, so the concept of design cybernetics has become common parlance for those involved in the book and, 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 and the people that have been influenced by Ranulf and then the subsequent students introduced by, uh, um, influenced by students of Ranulf's or associates of Ranulf's like yourselves. Um, but I know for me, when I first encountered the phrase, it was it was kind of baffling to me, design and cybernetics. It seems so obvious now, although I must admit I'm still still um, continuing to uncover the layers of the relationship between the two. So maybe by way of sort of moving into the book, we can talk a bit about the introduction that takes us through a kind of arc of development of design cybernetics. Um, and in the introduction, which you've co-authored, uh, you move us from uh, World War II and the rise of the systems traditions through the limits of control, instrumentalism, and design methods into the very important um, distinction, or I don't want to say transition, but distinction uh, between first to, to second order cybernetics, the relationship between conversation and design, and my cats are apparently having a conversation right now. Oh my goodness. Uh, and a... Uh, why don't you take it away from here? And once again, I'll turn my mic off and maybe have a quick chat with my cats while you take us through uh, an outline of the introduction. Yeah, so I'll, I'll start with this, and I think we can um, both contribute to it. The, the purpose of the introduction is to give the whole uh, new field, if you want, the design cybernetics field, a kind of a grounding and a background um, that extends beyond Reynolds Lanville. Because he's a mentor, but um, the origins of design cybernetics run um, much deeper, uh, if you like. And so the introduction starts basically with the, with the earlier um, development of cybernetics in the, uh, in the form of first order cybernetics, which was really focused on control and goal drivenness and um, took the world by storm. And uh, as you know, we still have it in many disciplines, starting from robotics to AI to um, uh, all kinds of other um, disciplines that by now are not really that related to second-order cybernetics anymore. And uh, what we can see is that um, immediately after World War II or already during that uh, time, we see um, a strong mutual influencing going on between design and uh, the, desi the emerging design uh, field or design science as they wanted to have it at the time. 
and early uh, early cybernetics. And uh, the idea was, of course, that design could learn from cybernetics, which was at the time already more established. And we traced the the overarching uh, development then um, to how designing eventually um, grew into its own discipline, how it established its differences to um, to to the sciences, and how in the end, like Reynold Granville used to postulate it, in fact, if we look at it, we can um, state that science is a subset of design and not the other way around. So it's a big transition and it's a big um, um, big transition in the thinking of what designing is and what it can do. And of course, design cybernetics then um, is the relationship between the cybernetics, uh, especially second order cybernetics, and the field of design. And it's a, uh, it's a tracing of the parallels between the two. But I bet that Tom has things to add as well here. Well, I can um, pick up that thought of the bafflement that you mentioned earlier, Tom, the idea that uh, design and cybernetics uh, don't immediately feel compatible to many people. And that has to do with the reputation of cybernetics as the field of control and communication with its origin in military technology and applications and so forth. So. Uh, to people whose conception of cybernetics is uh, this control and goal-oriented technical one, um, cybernetics is basically about systems where every time you press the button, you get the same result, yeah? deterministic, predictable um, setups. And design is the exact opposite of that. Yeah, Every time you press a, a, a button of a designer, you get an, something new and something unexpected. So uh, that seems counterintuitive at first. And the reason why these things fit together is that the principles and the concepts that were developed in the era of first-order cybernetics um, let's say, notions like variety, system, feedback, purpose, error, noise, and so forth. Those were used in this earlier version of cybernetics to determine technical systems towards predefined goals. And what second order and design cybernetics are now doing is to look at processes that are not goal-driven and to basically appropriate that early terminology to describe processes and attitudes that can be assumed in those processes to drive processes without pre-specified goals such that they may arrive at destinations that were previously unknown and thereby arrive at something new which could be a new thing in the world or new insights or concepts in the mind. So in that sense, we are talking about every way in which second-order cybernetics is about epistemic practice, be it through learning or research or design. If we want to end up in destinations we haven't known when we started, we have to assume an attitude that allowed allows us to get lost. In many ways, that's the opposite of goal-driven cybernetic first-order cybernetic systems. But we can describe those processes of getting lost and the the attitudes that should be that might be nurtured to to enable such processes using the terminology, much of the terminology of first-order cybernetics. Fantastic. Thank you both. That's a really wonderful illumination of, of the topic. And, um, you know, it has absolutely changed the way, for instance, I teach uh, directing uh, and not just for devised theater. So my own contribution to the book is a chapter on devised theater, theater that's created by an ensemble without a, a previously existing script. And so the fit there is is much more intuitive. Um, because there is no there is no known uh, known performance that we're heading towards, uh, and yet this idea that we can still approach such things with rigor, as you mentioned uh, off the top, Tom, is is so important that you want, what the idea that one can get lost in a rigorous way is really um, such a freeing, liberating, and powerful tool. And I find that when I'm even teaching directing in a more conventional sense of taking a script. 
the ultimate performance is still should be in the realm of the unknown. And it's actually a really great way to sort of drive a wedge into the old school notion of the theater director who will have their vision and everyone else on the team will now simply execute a vision that exists in total in the, in the director's mind. And so now I'm able to talk to, to students about the art of even directing an existing play as a conversation with the materials with the other actors, with the designers of sets and costumes, etc. And it's been incredibly um, liberating in that way. So its connections to pedagogy are obviously so important as well. Which then leads me really nicely into, Candy, your, your particular chapter, which is uh, Constructing Cybernetic Thinking, Design and Education. And this is an opportunity also where you you speak about the profound connection with uh, radical constructivism that um, dates back to that the uh, magical sort of uh, experience of hearing uh, Ernst von Glassersfeld speak, um, and that's carried on throughout your work uh, throughout. So, can you tell us a little bit about about what you're addressing in your chapter and the and the deep connections between uh, pedagogy, education, cybernetics, and radical constructivism? Yeah, sure. Um, the the whole um, idea for the chapter came about because I tried to figure out um, what is it that um, lets design stick to um, cybernetics as a practice, especially as a practice in education. Uh, I'm an educator, as as you are and as many of us are. And when you're in education, you have to very often verbalize things that as a designer um, may not be necessary to verbalize because you're simply embodying them or enacting them. Um, but as soon as you have to talk about or write about uh, or even justify um, the things you do, the same as you just said as a director, you know, well, you're a director, why are you not um, behaving as a director? Why are you not directing? Or what, what is your way of directing if you're not doing it the old school way? So I, I uh, went back, of course, into the literature and um, for a long time, the parallels between radical constructivism and um, the cybernetics have been known, especially second-order cybernetics. There's even journals um, that look at um, these these two ar- areas uh, in one journal. But the key component for me was what happens if we introduce design? Um, so it's not really just two sides of the same coin, as Reynolds Granville used to describe it. He said, uh, designing is actually the acting of cybernetics, or the enactment of cybernetics, and cybernetics presents the theory for uh, for designing. So he saw that as two uh, two things. But he also wrote other papers trying to detail the relationships of um, uh, of radical constructivism and um, and cybernetics. And in those papers, you very often find the whole idea of uh, what uh, radical constructivists call conceptual construction which actually means the real, the, the, the very fundamental act of designing what you think. And so we could say that designing is the most fundamental move. It's what we do. It's what we always do. And when we talk about um, radical constructivism as such, um, it doesn't really give us a theory of design. It doesn't recognize design. It calls it, you know, it calls it, okay, then new thoughts come about. And we we individually construct our worlds, but in fact we are designing our worlds. And so, uh, I would say everybody designs, and we are designing. And um, knowing more about this process will allow us, for example, as educators, to organize that process in a more um, a more suitable way, more interesting way, and to allow people to self-design, self-construct their own worlds, but in a collective framework. And uh, we rarely do these things alone. So um, the question is always, and in many different chapters of this book, it is how do we design together? How do we create these conversations uh, with the world, not just with us, but with others? And so um, I'm I'm branching out a little bit, but um, for me, it's quite essential to say this is not just a theory for, for one chapter, but the relationships be- between design and uh, epistemology and cybernetics, um, they're, they're actually one and the same thing. They're just different different sides of one big topic. So we can find them and echoes of them uh, in many of the chapters throughout the book. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the, the lineage of this thinking, as you're saying, it's not, and it's not just um, something that's just popped up as part of design or part of cybernetics, but you, 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 tr- you take us through the, um, 
the evolution of the notion of constructing understanding. And you take it all the way back to Giambattista Vico and then through Piaget, who is obviously a, a hugely important figure uh, for von Glassersfeld. Um, and the notion that, uh, as you say, um, what Piaget might call mentation, uh, which maybe we more often use the word cognition these days, but the idea that mentation is a is a form of design in which the there's a stream of perceptions out of which uh, an individual designs the objects and concepts with which they interact. But it goes far back, as 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 you pointed out, to Vico, and then through Piaget uh, into Glasersfeld. A yes, really and, important. And, sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah. So, so you will always see that. Um, all these um, different authors and uh, development stages of radical constructivism, if you want, they always feature conversation and they always feature um, this exchange between individuals and their environments. And they always implicitly all also feature design because new thoughts will be designed in that conversational process. And that is a very, you know, a very close connection to then the uh, the later, for example, the conversation theory of uh, Pask, and then how Reynolds, Glanville, and Paul Pangaro developed it further. So we can find a lot of similarities, and so the two, the three fields, I believe, they they need to be uh, more closely connected when we talk about them. Mm-hmm. Another really important principle you introduce in this chapter. Um, that I think has its origins in Glanville, but perhaps even further back. And in fact, it, it relates back to Piaget, if I'm not mistaken, is the notion that's, that sometimes we need to act in order un- to understand rather than thinking we need to understand before we act. Can you say a little bit about that notion and its importance? Yes, absolutely. If we see the, um, the um, let's say the conceptual construction of understanding as a cycle, um, as a design cycle, it, it is a circular process and it, um, it doesn't have an end or a beginning and it's not necessarily, um, directed. So, uh, in this, in this cycle, um, we, we come up with, with, uh, new design ideas and I have, I have lost your question a little bit. Can you, um, poke me again before I go off on a, uh, on a tangent? Yes, although your tangents are are uh, rewarding as well. But uh, I was asking about the the notion of acting to understand yeah, rather than thinking exactly. we need to so, simply understand thank you, thank before you. we can act. Good. So we uh, we we have this cycle of um, of acting and then seeing what comes out of it and constructing our understanding in response. So I believe that the the acting is a necessary component in this cycle. Yeah, the, the cycle is always one of doing something and then trying to find out or trying to construct what does this mean to me? What what uh, what does it mean about my environment? And so the acting part is an integral component. And um, I would say in, in any kind of conversational encounter, you can't really say you you think first and then you act because whatever you think has to come from somewhere. And uh, in a radical constructivist view, the acting um, is is absolutely important. Like a child has to act in order to really understand what what the world around him is. If you give a child a warning to say, this is very hot, it's much more effective to say, uh, to, to take something that is maybe not as hot and say, this is what hot feels like. You don't want to go there. So the, the whole idea of, we do something and then we think through it, think about it, will give us a different perspective on what it means to to act, especially, you know, in, in the creative fields. We are often told to behave more scientifically and to, let's say, do the analysis and do the research and then we implement it and then we get very good design. And I would say this is a misconception because very often in design we have to do and then to analyze what we have done and then to do again and to really include um, the, the, the uh, analytic, uh, analytic part, if you want, the research part into the design process that our doing can be a form of design uh, and uh, research as well. Wonderful. Uh, and I'm going to ask you a little bit about, about both research and design in a moment. But I just I wanted to, to flag that you mentioned this um, – this comparison between science and design, which is so important. And of course, um, Glanville's uh, fairly bold claim that science is in fact a restricted subset of design, which I, I love. Um, 
and it's it's interesting also to explore in ways and Glanville did this as well um, um it's primarily where where I, I get this notion from that um in some instances, the problem is not that science is actually all that different from design. It's that science, in a sense, pretends it's much more linear than it actually is. Yeah. And that scientists actually do, you know, you design an experiment 15 times in a way that doesn't work. And then you finally, along the way, finally stumble on the one that gives you the result you were looking for in the first place. The difference being that you had a result in mind in the first place. Uh, when I think about design versus uh, versus uh, science in which, okay, I want to prove X. I need a res- an, an experiment that proves X. 15 times it didn't give me X. Oh, the 16th one, it gave me X. But then the one I write up in my article is, is the one that worked. And that whole process of searching, of stumbling, of learning from mistakes, of, of post-rationalization, all of it is, is buried. Yeah. Totally. I would totally agree. And uh, I think both of us agree that um, if you, if you really look into the practice of anything that will develop new thoughts and even be it, you know, scientifically uh, develop new thoughts, you will always find that conversation. You will always find the, the necessary aimlessness or being, like Tom said, out of control in order to get the new. Because if you're completely in control, you will not be able to, uh, to let in that which is not yet known because you are in control and that means you already know everything. So here also comes in a, a big theme in the book and that is design research. Remember it's the Springer design research or design research foundation series. And um, the, the whole topic of what is the relationship of design and research um, comes up in several chapters. And uh, for example, Chad Krüger and Ute Besenecker and their contribution they, um, they go in depth in this process and they do it in a very nice way. They actually provide some case studies and they, um, they show what it means to work at the same time in a designerly manner and scientifically. And you will find instances of, of these, um, the, the very cybernetic way of not casting aside one paradigm, but actually using both and using them in a very dynamic way during a design process. Yes. Thank you. And is, can you say just a few more things about the implication of acting for design practice as well? Um, acting, uh, you mean acting for design? Um, normally, yeah, yeah. you would yeah, construct the, yeah. the circle as de- uh, acting to understand and understanding to act. Yeah, and its, impl- and, and its implications for specifically design practice. Yeah, so for design practice, I believe design practice itself uh, will not necessarily change, but very often we're in the position that we have to explain the necessities of design practice to others. And there we come into the territory of the narratives. So, for example, in education, you have to be in control to uh, to be able to justify what you're doing. And uh, the same in, in any kind of commercial context. So the the actual process of design and the narratives which we, with which we sell design and they can be different and i believe that the when you look at what designers do and also what uh, let's say creative scientists do who come up with a lot of new thoughts there will be a lot of similarities but what is different is how we frame them and how we uh, how we write about them and uh, you are completely right um, we if we wanted to really look at the the actual practice uh, we would find a lot of similarities across all these disciplines Whenever mm-hmm. we are dealing with the new, we need to act, we need to experiment, we don't know where we're going, and we have to just um, listen to what the results are telling us. Yeah, and the implications for education, as you've been mentioning, uh, and, and you and Tom have both been talking about as educators, is profound um, because um, I, I notice so much so much uh, strife amongst students, so much uh, anxiety amongst students who, what they're reading um, and the and the, the theories they're coming across in any discipline uh, make them feel as if there's some linear path they're supposed to be on. Are people struggling to write their dissertations in in a linear format when the process was was such a meandering uh, path? Uh, and so it's a it's a radical um, it's a radical redesign in a sense of 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 education as well to be able to talk openly about this more circular. Um, and often um, aimless, um, but yet rigorous process. 
Um, yes, totally. And I would say that even that Tom's chapter in the book, the contribution is um, precisely about that, how we can engage in certain kinds of processes and uh, we can frame them in other ways. So we can basically nest different um, modes of inquiry in order to fulfill expectations that may be brought to us by our respective institutions. So very often these narratives uh, really are, are brought to us from outside and sometimes we can't really do very much um, but what we can try to do is do justice to uh, to designing in the way that we think it works wonderful thank you well let's turn uh, now to tom's chapter so I, I should mention um before doing that that this uh, book features a reprint of a critical paper by Randolph glanville uh try again uh, fail again, fail better, uh, riffing on a famous line from uh, Samuel Beckett, um, which lays out many of the of the uh, lays the groundwork ultimately of of the field of design cybernetics. And then Tom, you've picked that up and uh, exploring the um, the the uh, exploring some of the work of NASA, where we famously uh, it, from whom we've inherited the cultural trope of the phrase "failure is not an option," and in your chapter, you uh, take us on a journey from "failure is not an option" to "try again, fail again, fail better." So, can you start us off by just saying a little bit about uh, what drew you to um, framing this particular narrative? Um, that's actually a Kubernetes paper. It's not a chapter in this book. <laughs> Oh, what is that? <laughs> All right, we'll have to cut this part out. All right. All right. Uh, let me make a note of that. That's why I can't find it. I keep, I keep scrolling through the book. It, it was okay. actually a very long paper that included that, but I That's took why it apart. I'm, I'm, I'm it thinking was there way initially. back to the early draft. Right. It was in here at one point. Well, maybe we won't cut this out. All right, so <laughs> it's so embarrassing. It was, it was initially uh, quite a long chapter that yes. uh, basically started off by juxtaposing these two different attitudes toward failure that you've mm -hmm. mentioned, and then develops an argument for what that could mean in uh, a practical academic context, in mm -hmm. specifically in doing design PhDs. And right. I've parceled out the NASA part into a journal article, and now the chapter is a much more digestible and more compact look at, um, yeah, basically, um, I wouldn't say guidance, but a, suggest, a, a suggestion to design uh, PhD researchers and supervisors on how to untangle this relationship between being in control and being out of control that we discussed earlier. And of course, so far in our conversation here, we have um, talked about these two worlds as mutually exclusive, uh, as if there was the first order strict control oriented domain, and then there's the second order out of control open ended domain. Uh, which, of course, is misleading. And if you take the example of um, theater practice that you mentioned before, of course, there's still a time and a place to have a director in a theater. And I can imagine that at some place and some time, the performance stops and the place is still controlled in some way in terms of the the temperature in the in the theater and making sure that people can leave the building when there's a fire at some point you want to make sure that things go to plan regardless of whether the uh, performance within some scope is allowed to unfold as as it wants so that is quite similar also in other settings and specifically in doing a design phd where there is uh, both control at play and uh avoidance of control yeah this this actually starts at the do you want to jump in no here? go ahead no go ahead please yeah so even even in the uh, uh very straightforward any any kind of straightforward design practice uh a designer will arrive at something previously unknown through getting lost but still 
may wish to be in control of the schedule and the budget and um, uh, the safety of the outcome or what have you. So there is basically a, a dance to be danced between control and control avoidance. And that then leads to the argument that I'm proposing in my uh, chapter, which is uh, ad which addresses this um, conflict that a design PhD student has to basically fulfill conflicting criteria. On the one hand, a uh, design PhD student wants to do justice to design as a messy practice, and on the other hand, wants to present a rational and clear argument as is expected in academic research. So how do you do justice to design and at the same time present a clear uh, linear argument that uh, I have observed in, in, in many instances, including my own, being the, the fundamental challenge of the um, design PhD. So to tackle that, I'm basically suggesting that these different forms of inquiry can be parceled and addressed separately and then be applied to one another. So, for example, you could engage in applied designing for a peri period of time uh, with all of the uncertainty and the model that comes with. And then at some point, you could then step outside of that subjective inquiry and look at the track you have left while designing and then analyze it uh, in a more distanced and rational approach in the way a scientist might look at a data set, say by coding and quantifying particular kinds of actions. So now you would have two different inquiries. One way you can do justice to designing without the need for rationality getting in your way. And another inquiry where you do justice to rational academic research requirements without the model of designing getting in your way. And I'm basically discussing and illustrating a number of different permutations of how that might be done. Right. And now that I've gone from a period of being out of control to back in control and have the correct chapter, a theory of and for inquiry, which I'm also familiar with. Um, yeah. So, and are you... Are you suggesting then, you're suggesting that, that these different narratives can live inside the same dissertation? That, that yes. We can, yeah. And you've created a number of different positions, and it's a really uh, rigorous uh, theory, and, and it, you present your chapter as a theory of and for inquiry. And inside it, you, you because the observer is so important in second-order cybernetics, right, the, the, yeah. the observer dependence of everything, you have created a kind of... Um, taxonomy of observer positions, observer inside looking outwards, observer outside looking outwards, etc. Can you talk us through this sort of matrix of, uh, of observer positions that through which uh, this, this theory can be enacted? Yeah, there, there's a whole lot here that needs to be uh, explained to outline that. And the important piece of background is a paper by um, Freiling, uh, from 1992, Christopher Freiling distinguishes between three different kinds of design research, design for, design through, and design about research, which are different forms of, um, of inquiry. So those I have then mapped onto these different observer positions that you mentioned before, which I did not think up. They were actually already presented in a paper by Reynolds Glenville, I think 1994, uh, titled A Ship Without a Rudder. And the paper includes a somewhat cryptic appendix where he already presents three different um ways for uh, an observer to locate themselves within systems, systems here meaning inquiry, and the relative position of an objective, be it static or evolving through the inquiry. So the observer may be within the system, looking at a goal outside, 
uh, all the goal might be inside or the observer might be outside of the system and the goal inside or outside. So there are four different permutations. One of them, Reynolds did not want to mention because he argued it would be more mysterious to not talk about situations we must pass over in silence and cannot talk about. So the the situation where the observer is within their inquiry, looking within, he did not want to talk about that. He didn't see a need to make that explicit because the whole point of that uh, configuration being that it's a private affair. But I've basically taken those four and mapped them onto Freiling's category and look at, for example, the uh, the observer position being subjectively involved within their inquiry corresponding to design research uh, or the research through design and then the observer being outside positioning themselves in a more objective way that corresponding to the way say uh, an experiment is configured in the natural sciences so there's actually a whole bunch of different theoretical strands that i'm essentially mapping onto each other showing how they're on the one hand very compatible and how they can also be quite um, quite helpful and and guiding in um, in structuring designerly inquiries that in the end are expected to be communicated in the way that uh, PhD theses are also presented in other disciplines as rational linear arguments. So could you hear me a second ago? Okay, no, sorry, we, I'm back. we could not. Okay. Um, Is this a dress rehearsal and we're going to do this properly at some point? <laughs> you know I'm leaving that comment in, by the way. We're enacting design cybernetics at the moment as All we right. speak. We're All on right. a journey. We're in a conversation. I will correct this yet another error. And um, it, it seems that a lot of what you're getting at is, is about the ex- being explicit about those shifts in observer position as well. So that we're not sort of lost in a in a world where we are talking about something that would be an objective reality, regardless of where the observer position is, and that all of these observer positions are useful. And you mentioned, you know, that is also still useful at a certain moment for the director to be the director, right? To actually decide, right. okay, this is the moment in which I'm going to move into. In a sense, sometimes moving from even from an open loop place to closing a, a control loop. Um, so that it, that, that, um, being explicit about these moves, um, is important in terms of being able to communicate effectively within the context of a PhD dissertation, as you're mentioning. Uh, but also there's something about, about, there seems to me there's something ethical about it as well. That's right. That's right. Um, so as you, as you, as we, as we discussed before, the, the whole, project of design cybernetics, if you will, is about the question of how do you engage in a process that no one has ever undertaken and uh, give it your best shot, do it do it well, even though there is no recipe, no method, and uh, no um, painting by numbers kind of process that you could follow and be ensured that it's going to uh, work as expected. So in that open-endedness, the any attempt to um, proceed with rigor then becomes, I think, an ethical commitment because you are no longer uh, trying to satisfy some kind of uh, methodological uh, uh, authority, but your own standards of uh, whatever it is that guides you in 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 doing the best job you can with the resources and the perspectives at hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so much in this that that has become. I'm realizing more and more as we have this discussion how much of 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 having the benefit of being involved in this community uh, with with the two of you and and the other collaborators of this book um, has influenced um, my own my own teaching and my own. Um, uh, you know, when, when I've got a student, uh, a, a graduate director um, doing an MFA in, um, in directing and they think, well, this is my thesis show, so it has to be X, Y, and Z. And I, and I end up trying to reframe that as, no, this is the show. You're going to do a lot of shows in your lifetime. This is the one that you're going to write about. That's it. That's the difference. And, what, and it's going to be whatever it is. It's not about 
whether this is the defining artistic statement of your life or whether the show is an utter flop. If you can, if you can, um, display a kind of reflexive capacity to articulate, uh, what happened to you on the journey, uh, and the kind of, and make explicit, maybe some of the tacit knowledge that you uncovered or employed or whatever along the way, that that is a successful piece of inquiry. Absolutely. And getting a postgraduate student or even an undergraduate student, any student to realize that can be really liberating, that there is the option of success in failure. Yeah? Uh, many students tend to approach their projects with an imperative of success. There has to be some demonstration of uh, effective control so that there can be the, the 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 successful outcome as intended and with that comes usually a great anxiety that things could actually not turn out as expected and once you get a student to realize that if you fail you can uh, probably learn even more and write up that process of learning through failure, uh, that then becomes a, a liberating moment because uh, there's still a way forward when things don't go as expected. And more importantly, there's now an avenue for uh, genuine learning. And liberating for those who read it as well, right? Because rather than these these linear airtight narratives of of a linear drive to quote unquote success that continue to build up this terrifying edifice of, of pristine um, accomplishment that terrifies graduate students to this degree, the liber liberating them through the, the re if someone's able to, under the guidance of someone like yourself, able to write that up as a PhD dissertation and, and, and look at a quote unquote failure as a success because of the learning that it enables very liberating for the person that then can read that paper too. I often think we should start having journals, academic journals that are devoted, and maybe some exist. I think maybe there are, but journals in totally, uh, devoted entirely to failure. Well, yeah, you could do that. But then if you, if you think this through, you wouldn't necessarily arrive at a failure with the negative connotation of the word. You would, yeah. you would arrive at genuine insight that can be very productive and very fruitful and uh, lead to uh, further success of other kinds. Yeah. So I, I would interject here and say yes, that's precisely the the title of Reynolds' classic paper, Fail, Fail Again, Fail Better, there's a sense of acting and there's a sense of improvement through doing that. Yeah. And then we act in order to understand, which includes, I mean, Candy, you mentioned, you know, discovering that something's hot. Well, we all remember how we learned that, right? We all remember how we learned. And we remember it for a long time. And we remember in it for our a very long. own ways. And we all learn it in our own ways. And this is why this learning is so persistent. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Um, this is great. Um, can you just say a little bit more, Tom, about, so you, there was that Ranulph's reluctance to um, explicate the observer inside looking inwards, and you decided that you wanted to do more with that. Can you say a little bit more about why you felt it was important and what your aims were as you, as you built on this uh, foundation that he had, had constructed? Well, ultimately, the designer being inside and looking inwards would probably not be a very good uh, starting position for a PhD in the sense that at some point, the whole point, yeah, at some point, you would have to uh, commit your inquiry to an outside audience where it's then scrutinized and examined. So uh, in one way or another, in PhD work, there would always be that external goal or that external standard to fulfill um, but designerly inquiry can and this is where as you say Reynolds was quite uh, insistent uh, be justified entirely for the delight of it as a private practice yeah a designer may just engage in creative inquiry of any kind uh, for the fun of it and for the delight of it, and uh, there's uh, there's nothing illegitimate at, uh, about this, but it is not commonly uh, a way that is accommodated in academic settings, where ultimately 
the ideas to to share and to contribute to a field and that then uh, comes with the obligation to commit our insight to paper and then all the different things that language does to our ideas and our insight come into play and we have to post-rationalize and to to filter and to linearize uh, the the things and we've arrived as if they were uh, arrived at in linear and somewhat causally deterministic ways unless you want to end up with some kind of writing that would be uh, unreadable so the that's another another threat that i've lost oh god no no that's good the way i have resolved that basically was that i have looked at the configuration of the observer being inside the inquiry looking inside that happens at the level where the candidate designs their study and designs their thesis that design process is going to be quite different from any design that's being discussed in the thesis it does not become explicit in the thesis uh, as such it is the process by which you decide on say what goes into which chapter uh, or how you might uh consider the range of different methods that could be uh coming into question here before you uh explicitly uh weigh once one one method against the other so there is this abstract level of a phd inquiry that never becomes explicit within the piece itself but is instrumental in getting it off the ground and that comes again from a very personal and private process either within the mind of the student or within conversations in the supervisory team uh, but that is basically the the configuration a configuration where the inquirer is within the inquiry subjectively invested and the uh, objectives are also within and never get out and become explicit to be scrutinized by others. Right. Thank you. That's wonderful. So I could continue to talk to you for hours, as you both know. Um, and yeah, so, this, so could we. <laughs> and this conversation has, has just reminded me again of why, why I love this field so much uh, and why I love the conversations throughout the community and particularly with the two of you. But I want to, with just a few minutes we've got left, close with the um, traditional questions, which is to tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. Candy, let's hear from you first. What are your current research projects? I I want to take this question, thank you, Tom, for um, to a little bit more broad range, because yeah, you see, the, the book is really not just a book um, for our two chapters or, or three chapters, if you want, but it's about a broader set of ideas. Um, so we are taking design cybernetics, um, we are giving it a name, and we are developing it further. So many of us are now working on, uh, on a further development, and you asked us initially about um, ideas that are emerging across the chapters and I think that was a very interesting question and I think when you're asking me what, what are you doing now then it's definitely related to these ideas that are now emerging now we have had a, quite a bit of development in the in the first stage of design cybernetics we have the name but what now and we find that um, among the, the kind of new set of ideas um, that you will find when you browse through the index of the book which you know don't discriminate between individual chapters, but simply count which um, ideas, which notions uh, occur across the chapters, and which um, which of these um, all of us consider um, of being very important. Then you come up with these ideas of practice, of performance, or participation. Um, also, um, a term that you have been talking about with Tom before, rigor or responsibility. So we are taking uh, now the the whole idea of design research and looking at what what is it doing in our practices and I think that's that's something that we are all doing and uh, we are doing it in our very own ways. You for example do it in in theater studies. But for me it would be um looking into uh, my research field um and that is concerned with the intersection between uh, architect 
architecture and engineering and um, how can we look at creative processes in the encounter of different disciplines? And of course, this also means encounters of different value sets, um, different uh, different backgrounds, different ways of thinking, like design versus science. And um, I'm looking at yeah, how how does this unfold in practice? And I believe many other authors um, who have contributed chapters uh, are doing quite similar things. So I think um, it's it's. Uh, uh, it's interesting to look into the index because some directions forward can be uh, taken from there. Absolutely, thank you. That's a that's a fantastic response. Uh, and of course, we need to uh, we need another couple of hours to talk about the many other wonderful contributions. And we we touched on 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 the author, who the authors were and what some of the some of the the topics were. But I love that idea of looking at the index and certainly going over the book again and again. Um, is pointing me towards something new. And it's amazing how it, it it mirrors that very process we've been talking about that I'm like, okay, well, we're all, we're all writing these chapters and that's great. And at times I felt like, well, we're kind of, there's a lot of overlap between these chapters, which is good and maybe not so good. And, and I, once again, I was, I found myself submerged just in the process of it. And now it's almost, you know, the book was published a little while ago and it's almost now emerging from that exercise from the doing from the acting in order to understand that as you say looking at the book even even though it hasn't been all that long in retrospect in a sense the clear indications of what the next steps might be are just emerging now uh, even for the authors themselves so it really it's a beautiful um illustration of this reflexive uh process um, can i chip in there please do yeah so actually there is already a passage in the book somewhere where we uh, describe how we hope the book will play out in uh, in time, and at at that place we say that we think design cybernetics needs simplification and exemplification. Uh, the goal being to make it more approachable to those who are not yet uh, familiar with it. So there's a pedagogical uh, agenda here whereby we hope we can make it uh, more accessible to others. And that's something that in one way or another, each and every one of the contributors is engaged. Then the the index that Candy mentioned, of course, us being the, the editors, that has been uh, a big part of our uh, input to the book maybe not as um, obvious to everybody else, but in compiling the index in the back of the book, we have actually made a lot of interesting observations. Um, one is that various keywords um, stick out for lines and lines of page numbers that you can literally see visually in the index that some of those notions are important across all chapters. And uh, interestingly, those notions map very closely on a list of notions that Ranulph Glenville proposed so at some point as key terms for a future cybernetics pedag cybernetic pedagogy. Uh, uh, notions like the observer, variety, constraint, hierarchy, interaction, self-organization, and so forth. But then there are those new terms that can be alluded to terms that also get a lot of attention from the different contributors, uh, but that haven't been so explicit and so prominent in previous second-order cybernetic discussions, at least not in such a concentrated form. Uh, terms like culture, creativity, participation, performance, rigor, and responsibility are also indicators in the index of where the trajectory is going, which is clearly away from the technical and the deterministic while holding on to valuable terms and concepts from the technical era into an exploration of what it means to be a creative and ethical human being uh, negotiating their own goal in open-ended inquiries. I think that's where this is going in the long term. And as academics, we are all uh, 
supporting that process first and foremost through pedagogical means. And uh, at least for me at the moment, it's a clearly pedagogical project um, where, for example, I am looking at how we can move away from technology as an end to technology as a means to getting people to um, closer to an appreciation of cybernetic uh, ideas. So I have, for example, a whole body of um, computer scripts that embody cybernetic ideas as vehicles for for insight. Yeah, so you engage with a computer not in order to accomplish something in the world but to observe your own observation uh, and to elucidate that so this is our practice as academics and as uh, as teachers i presume that includes yourself and Absolutely. i i hope i speak on behalf of the whole cast of contributors that's that is the the pro the project uh finding a path for this discipline to work out a full appreciation of the human dimension of cybernetics. Wonderful. What a beautiful uh, summary of what, what's happened and opening the pathway to where we're headed. And I'm so fired up now about <laughs> I mean, I'm always fired up about it, but now I'm ready to start writing the next to the next book uh, with you guys immediately. Uh, hopefully, hopefully I'll be on the invite list. Um, thank you both so much for being here. It's been just such a tremendous conversation. Always appreciate a chance to catch up with the two of you and to be able to share this with our listeners who got to hear us so thoroughly enact a process of getting lost, trying and failing, <laughs> failing better. We had fighting cats. We had, we had people losing their train of thought. We had me not having my mic on. We, we had me looking at the wrong paper. I mean, this was designed cybernetics, folks. <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, you're... <laughs> in all seriousness, your description of the human... Uh, navigating, you know, their their own goals and desires in an open ended process of of inquiry. To me, cybernetics ends up ultimately ultimately being about a way of being in the world. Uh, whether one is a designer, a theater maker, whether when one is a human being, uh, just a, an orientation to the world that is conversational, that is um, that is about acting in order to understand, etc. So, thank you so much for being here and, and helping illuminate all of that uh for our audience and uh i hope very much to talk to you again soon and i'm pretty sure i will thank you too. Oh, that's great thank you thank you both <laughs>